Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band. It's a bad band. It's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what. There's music in the air. The members of Mudhoney have been heroes to the Seattle rock scene for more than 30 years, and they're still going strong. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We take the show on the road to Seattle for an interview and performance from Mudhoney. Plus, we review the new album from Wilco. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and that's a little bit of the band Mud Honey. We're going to be talking about the town where that band came from. We took a road trip to Seattle, the hometown of Mud Honey, and a lot of great music in the in the 80s and early 90s. I mean, that city was overflowing with musical talent. Uh, major labels came a courting soon after, <laughs> but we forget sometimes that at the core of that was a great underground scene that began in the 80s with bands like the Melvins and Green River, which went on to spawn both Pearl Jam and Mud Honey. You had bands like Soundgarden recording for labels like Sub Pop, uh, which were one of the key indie labels of that particular era. You had Nirvana coming up and putting out yeah. uh, singles and albums for Sub Pop before they got signed to the majors. Pearl Jam came out of that city. You had major label superstars like Alice in Chains, but you also had bands that were resolutely underground for their entire careers like Tad. Somewhere in the middle of all that, and I think really epitomizing that scene best of all was the band Mud Honey, which Jim will forever be associated with that awful G word. The right? G word. Well, <laughs> you know, it's notable that every band of any worth that came out of Seattle hated the word grunge. <laughs> that was a marketing phrase, not a musical phrase, but that's what's gone down in the history books. Mud Honey today is made up of singer guitarist Mark Arm, guitarist Steve Turner, drummer Dan Peters, and bassist Guy Madison, and they are as strong a group as they ever were. Something extraordinary to say about a band that's lasted three decades. We talked to them a few months ago in front of a live audience at the Neptune Theater in Seattle, one of those great early you know 1900s movie palaces turned concert venues. Before they were known as Mud Honey, they were a band called Mr. Epp and the Calculations, <laughs> named after a high school math teacher. I asked vocalist Mark Arm about the origins of the group and how they came together. Uh, to be honest, I didn't name the band. That band was actually some friends of mine, and they had a fake band going for a couple of years, and eventually we bought instruments and amplifiers, and I kind of weaseled my way into this thing. So wait, you hijacked the band before... We hijacked the band? Exactly. Because, <laughs> Steve, you joined later. Then I joined later, yeah. They well already after, had instruments? Well after I was out of high school. <laughs> okay. Like, I loved the Mr. Epp 7-inch when it came out. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I met Mark, and uh, we became instant friends kind of when uh, Alex Shumway, Alex Vincent, introduced us and said, he's straight edge too, and we both kind of rolled our eyes at each other. <laughs> <laughs> You were not quite straight edge, either of you. I was on acid. Uh, there you go. 
Well, that's a spiritual experience. I don't know if it qualifies as getting messed up. I... But uh, so then I joined the band, and uh, we took it in a more conventional rock direction for a few months, and then the as a conventional as yeah. we could make yeah. it. It wasn't very <laughs> conventional, but in our minds, we're like we're like you know we're like, like playing rock and ACDC roll. or something. Oh, but then the rest of the guys. You know, said we don't want to do this. We quit, and so yeah, yeah, that was that. Had to move on. <laughs> what did hardcore punk mean to all of you, really, at that point when you were still teenagers and then in college? Because that's where you were coming from, right? It was the hardcore punk on what SSD? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it was you know people our own age for the most part, and uh, it didn't have any kind of commercial trappings. I kind of thought that the music I was hearing on the radio at the time was. Can I say it? Oh, yeah. You can say it. <laughs> um, and even though there were a lot of dumb shits in the scene, there were a lot of, like, kind of really smart, weird outsider people that yeah. were involved. And, yeah. Uh, and I kind of gravitated to those people, you know? Yeah, for, for me, like, I didn't like rock and roll as a kid, you know? Mm. I was, you know, kind of into folk music and whatever, you know, weird things I could find. But when I heard punk rock, like, you know, Devo and The Clash and DOA and that stuff and Black Flag, it was like, oh, okay, this is cool. And I went to the, a few, the first few rock concerts I went to were small punk rock shows. And uh, it was people of all ages, you know, like there were gray haired, you know, professors yeah. type guys there. There were all sorts of different, we really weird people, but you talk to them and they're, and they're cool. And some of the bands were my age. And I was like, you can be in a band at my age. Like, I didn't even know that yet. I was like, how is that even possible? What, do you, what does that mean? You know? Yeah. So I, I Where do you that get was, the license? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was like, it was rad, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was also cooler than anything else I saw happening in my high school. Steve, you, you, you've sort of become a god for a, a, a certain generation, a certain particular type of guitar player, simply because of... The fuzz box. The fuzz box. <laughs> so explain Super Fuzz Big Muff to the world out there. You know, like I said, I didn't know much about rock and roll when I got into it. I got a guitar given to me for Christmas, and I got a little amp, and I couldn't make it sound like anything. I was like, I... Like, and I... I worked at a Japanese restaurant in Bellevue with this uh, uh, a guy from uh, Vancouver, BC, who'd been in a punk band called the Bludgeon Pigs. He had been this these rad punk bands. He was a guitar player and stuff. He was kind of into like more you know pop kind of stuff. And so I was telling him like yeah, yeah, you know. So I knew he played guitar and stuff. And he had all these great stories. I was like, I just can't make it sound like you know what I want it to. Like doesn't like. So he goes like, well, what kind of distortion pedal are you using? I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and he just kind of smiled. And the next day at work, he, he handed me a super fuzz pedal and they plug this in to, to the amp and the guitar, plug, you know, like get a second chord. And like, so I did that and I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, like, you know, you know, broke the windows out. You know? And uh, so that started the realization that there were these things called fuzz boxes out there. And uh, I've based everything on it. Oh, yeah. 
Well, and I got the, my first Big Muff, I bought it in 1984, and there was literally a stack like this tall on the floor of this music store, and they were $25, like closeout. So that was the first one that I got, and that's the one that's in the EMP. Like, it actually got run over by our van at some point on tour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's in the museum. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hear one of the classic cuts off their Super Fuzz Big Muff EP, Touch Me, I'm Sick, live on Sound Opinions. Mud Honey's Touch Me, I'm Sick, live on Sound Opinions from the Neptune Theater in Seattle. Let's get back to our conversation with Mud Honey. Shortly before In Utero came out, I was interviewing Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic of Nirvana, and I asked them what I thought was the million-dollar question. Why was Smells Like Teen Spirit such a massive hit, but not Mud Honey's Touch Me, I'm Sick a few years earlier? Both of them, uh, in stunned uh, amazement, said it should have been. The Mud Honey song should have been a hit. Here's how lead singer Mark Arm and guitarist Steve Turner responded to that. It's way, yeah, it's way too gnarly it, sounding. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a way rawer song. It's like doesn't have... Uh, uh, like the production values on Nevermind are yeah. pretty clean. Yeah, Way um, slick, yeah. I mean, the guitar's loud, but it's like it's not... There's no super fuzz and there's no big muff. 
we never we never expected that, and that wasn't yeah. a goal. And it, why would we think that would happen? That's what we were always like. Right. Like when we would. In the early 90s, like, the English press was always asking these guys, like, so, do you expect to get big? It's like, no, we do not. Right. Like, like because why would we? Have you heard us? Because <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like, we're always talking, like, we're not expecting anything, and we're not going to be disappointed, because it's not going to happen. Like, right. bottom line, it ain't going to happen. We had a pretty good happen. view of, like, the history of most of the bands that we love. Like, the MC5 and the Stooges, right. and Blue Cheer had a weird one-off hit. Black um, Flag. Like, Black Flag. Right. Yeah, the scientists. Legends, like all these legendary bands. The birthday yeah. party, you know. Yeah. It goes on and on and Radio on. Radio Birdman. Yeah, yeah. The Saints. Yeah. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis. We're here in Seattle with uh, Mud Honey. Um, so, one of the things that we loved about Seattle, because I think you share a certain uh, sensibility with Chicago in terms of the absolute sarcasm that you approach anything approaching, you know, like, oh, the big industry's coming in and telling us we're fine now, they're anointing us. Looking back, uh, huge amount of attention. Uh, would it have been better if? The industry had not paid attention. I mean, would it have changed anything? What, how did it influence the kind of music that was made here, the types of bands that were here? Was it a good thing, a positive thing, now that you've got some hindsight on it? Well, I think in the long run, the whole major label thing was detrimental to the underground scene. I think uh, it made people think that they could do it too, and people kind of either watered down or gave up when they didn't make it, you know, and... Um, you know, in the 80s, the Butthole Surfers were a really, really weird band. Yeah. And in the 90s, they did a song that sounded like Beck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you know, or Soul Asylum was like a really, really great band. And then they did Runaway Train. <laughs> you know. And yeah. they're still playing state fairs today. <laughs> you know, the, the idea of like being a huge band when I was coming up was like, you know, maybe playing a venue this size. And that was like yeah. a huge band yeah. to me. You know? That would be making it. Yeah, yeah. Now here's Mud Honey with the song The Gift from its 1989 self-titled album, live on Sound Opinions.
Mud Honey playing The Gift live on Sound Opinions in Seattle. When we come back, we'll talk more with Mud Honey about the group's career and the craziest thing they ever saw while touring. Plus, stay tuned for a new segment we're calling Sample Platter, where we break down the ingenious use of samples in popular songs. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis, and that's a little bit of the song Good Enough from our guest this week, the rock band Mudhoney, one of the all-time greats, certainly from that Pacific Northwest scene of the late 80s, early 90s, still going strong today. A few months ago, we took our show on the road to Seattle, a city that has a tremendous musical and cultural heritage. Uh, we had a great conversation with Mudhoney. I mean, Jim, you and I both started writing uh, in our careers at the same time that Mud Honey was uh, emerging yeah, from that Seattle scene. Their career has spanned ours. <laughs> and we've we've been interviewing the, the band all along. This is a great opportunity to interview them again in front of a live audience at the Neptune Theater in downtown Seattle. Now, I've heard some crazy stories about their time performing in Europe, especially uh, when they went over there the first time. I heard that people were actually lining up in Europe to stage dive at a Mudhoney show. <laughs> so I had to ask lead guitarist Steve Turner about whether or not that was really true. Yeah, that, that was before MTV started showing it, so they didn't really know what to do yet. So there was like this, like, you know, like a lot of the smaller clubs in Europe at the time were like kind of uh, community-based. They were like arts and, you know, just some kind of weird art community spots. And uh, so th- they were actually lining up on the side of the stage to stage dive, and they had like several people. Like one person, like, okay, now you go, and, and, <laughs> and like, like a bunch of people ready to you know help them not you know crash and burn on the ground. <laughs> we played a show in um, uh, Nott- of- Nottingham, oh, uh, Nottingham, and yeah. you know it was like a bigger venue, and there was um, a barricade between the stage and and the, and the crowd. But there was a whole queue of uh, young British boys. <laughs> Standing up, and there was like a ladder that had a platform, oh, man. Uh, like like st- steps to a platform, and then they would. There was also a lifeguard. <laughs> they would take turns 
politely <laughs> diving into the crowd. Wow. But, you know, a year later or so, that they'd seen, you know, the it. chaos of some big shows and stuff. So, it, But, the, you know, what I thought was so great then was even touring, you know, the States in 1988, 89, different scenes were different. And then it yeah. just became the same. You know, the reaction to the music was the same wherever you went, you know. And that was kind of, you know, it's just what happens, but, you know. I like seeing the weirdness of the different scenes, you know? Yeah, like Kansas City was a place where they oh, would just man. kick cardboard boxes around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that became the thing. That yeah. was their thing. <laughs> Which was totally awesome. It was so I good think to I watch. I kicked the box myself. <laughs> I mean, uh, if like a band from Kansas City became huge, that could have been the thing on MTV. Yeah. <laughs> Time for another track from Mud Honey. Here's the song Inside Job from the group's 2002 album, Since We've Become Translucent, live on Sound Opinions.
Inside Job by our guest Mud Honey on Sound Opinions, recorded live in Seattle at the Neptune Theater. Now let's return to our chat with the band. Throughout the years, Mud Honey has collaborated with musicians with really diverse backgrounds, from Sir Mix-a-Lot to Pearl Jam. I wanted to hear about the band's time working with legendary producer Jim Dickinson, who also recorded Big Star, The Replacements, and Bob Dylan. Here's Mark Arm. It was super cool. It was our only chance to actually work with a producer. You know, we uh, normally record it for very cheaply, but something in our reprise contract, like, basically if we didn't spend all the money, we wouldn't keep the back end, so we decided to just, like, blow it all on a producer like most bands do. And we had a really hard time figuring out, like, who we would actually want to work with, who might kind of get where we're coming from. And uh, our friends Clawhammer had recorded with Jim Dickinson, and our friend David Katznelson, who's our A&R guy, had worked with him. And we thought, he's got to be the guy. He's got a great history. Done the replacements. Yeah. And, worked and with the Stones. Big Star 3. Oh, yeah, that, that Stones band. Yes, yes. yeah. Big Star 3. It was all about Big Star 3 to me at the time. I was like, hey, well, that, that's, he sounds pretty chaotic. Yeah. <laughs> like we figured he wouldn't be someone who tried to tame us. Yeah. Right. Not that we're like totally wild, but you know, he would just let us be who we are. Um, and he came up and we recorded here for a while. Then he, wanted, snowing. then he wanted to go home. And he hated the snow, <laughs> so he was like, I have to go home. Back to Memphis. <laughs> so was, he, he knew that, like, Matt didn't, at that point, Matt didn't want to leave town. So he knew, basically, as soon as the bass and drum tracks were totally finished, he was like, okay, I got to go home. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, um, Steve and Dan and I went down to Memphis, ostensibly just to mix the record, and we ended up doing a whole bunch of over overdubs and I read it all the vocals which was a really really good thing mm. and um, yeah, he, he, he was great to work with he had amazing stories and you know he, he was you know not a normal producer like he didn't right. touch knobs or anything he just kind of like he was a vibe guy you know <laughs> and he was open to anything he was <laughs> he smoked, he smoked, smoked a, lot. a lot of fire yeah. Yeah, okay. but he was like he was totally open to anything and like he decided at one point like I have to take you to you know, Sun Studios to record one guitar lead, you know. So wow. we hauled over there and did one guitar lead at Sun Studio. <laughs> Um, Jimmy Dale Gilmore, what would be the most least likely per- person you would think that Mudhoney would collaborate with and made a really cool EP with Jimmy? Does everybody know who Jimmy Dale Gilmore is? He's a, a Texas artist. Flatlanders. Flatlanders, dude. Um, how did that come about? How did you get in a studio with Jimmy Dale Gilmore to make this EP? I was insane for that kind of music at the time. Like, and still am, you know, I, like the yeah. Flatlander stuff just, you know, blew my mind. And uh, we had an old friend from the Seattle scene, Faith Henschel, who was working at Jimmy Dale's label. What label yeah, was that? Electra at the time. Electra. Yeah. And uh, she suggested it. Basically, they flew me and Mark out to Montana to see one of his shows. And we got to ride back from Montana to Seattle on his tour bus. And we kind of stayed up most of the night, you know, 
listening. The first time on a tour bus, man. It, it was, was wild. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was just one of those weird fanboy times for me, you know, because I, I just loved his stuff so much. And uh, you know, he's sitting there singing Towns Van Zandt songs to us, trying to decide what song we should cover together. And so they were so greatly influenced by Towns. And, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I was, you know, in love with Towns Van Zandt at the time. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Towns, after one of his shows, came over to Dan's house yeah. and just sat there and played songs for us after his set. He came over to my house and uh, played music for like four hours. And, uh, wow. Uh, yeah. I was sitting in my living room. That was a really amazing night. I could get a microphone from downstairs. Uh, <laughs> I heard her sing in tongues of silver. I heard her cry on a summer storm. I loved her, but she did not know it. So I don't think about her anymore. Now she's gone and I can't believe it. So I don't think about her anymore. Let's hear one more song from our guests, Mud Honey. Here's I Like It Small from the group's 2013 album, Vanishing Point, live on Sound Opinions.
We have been talking with Mud Honey at the Neptune in Seattle. Guys, thanks so much for uh, being our guest on Sound Opinions. Thanks. A pleasure, man. That wraps up our session with Mud Honey. You can view exclusive video footage from our Seattle taping at soundopinions.org. Do you have an opinion on Mud Honey, the Seattle music scene, or anything else in the musical universe? Leave us a message at 888-859-1800. Coming up, we explore the psychedelic roots of a Beyonce song. Plus, we review the new Wilco record, and Greg drops a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and Greg, we're going to introduce a new segment that we're calling Sample Platter. You know, we're, we're fascinated by the art of sampling. I think it's very misunderstood still to this day exactly what artists do when they're sampling at maximum creativity. Of course, we know bad samples. You lift a hook from a song, you stick it in your song, you call it something new. We're talking about artists who really use it uh, not only in a fascinating musical way to create something new out of something that came before, but but doing what we do as rock critics, recontextualizing an era or a, uh, a, a topic, a theme, an artist, a moment in history, and bringing it into the present. Uh, so from time to time, we're going to look at a pop song, an interesting song, and, and see the sample that it's based on. What are we starting with? Well, Jim, one of the most compelling uh, tracks and one of the most compelling albums of the year so far is Beyonce's Lemonade, uh, specifically the song Freedom. Yeah. We're going to look at that song in particular. Now, when you hear uh, Beyonce's Freedom, you're hearing this very uplifting, powerful track. It's almost like a march, a stomping marching band. Keep 
So where is she drawing from on this particular track? You know, you've got this amazing organ part that seems to be the centerpiece of the song. Where is that coming from? Where it's coming from is a sample of a 1969 recording by a Latin American group called Kaleidoscope called Let Me Try. Who was Kaleidoscope? This group uh, recorded in the Dominican Republic. They were signed to a Mexican label. They had formed in 67 in Puerto Rico, uh, in San Juan. Only 600 copies were sold of their debut album. Today, it's a huge collectible. Uh, you, can, you can spend eight grand trying to find mm -hmm. a copy if you're lucky enough. The vocalist Frank Torado said we were all about the new man, which if we go back to 1967, what does that mean? It, you know, this hippie idea that we can, it's not just male, but we can become better, we can transcend. But look at what happened in 68. You know, there were riots in oh, Paris. Sure, there, sure. there are the riots here in Chicago at the Democratic National Convention. You know, the world is rising up to protest. And Beyonce has written a modern protest song that has the vibe of 68, literally and figuratively. Well, I think uh, more, more importantly, though, she's not just ripping off uh, Kaleidoscope. What she's doing is transforming it, recontextualizing yes. it, whereas Kaleidoscope had sort of more of a trippy drugged out vibe about their song. She's turning it into a stomping, raging march. The song is saying, you know, I'm going to keep on wading through the water till the tide don't move. It's very defiant. Mm. Kendrick Lamar has a cameo on that track. Beyonce was saving him for this particular track. He knew it was a centerpiece of her album. Six headlights waving in my direction. Come on. 5-0 me, what's in my possession? Yeah, I keep running, jumping the aqueducts, fire hydrants and hazardous smoke alarms on the back of us. But mama don't cry for me, ride for me, drive for me, live for me, breathe for me, sing for me. Honestly, got in me, I can be more than I gotta be. I think in the same way that the Black Lives Matter protests and movement do not want to end in the lack of effect that the 68 riots ended in, I think Beyonce's trying to motivate us and she's built it on a great foundation. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that is the song Locator by Wilco from its 10th studio album. 
The new one is called Wilco Schmilko. The group formed in 1994 from the ashes of uh, probably the most influential alternative country or no depression band, Uncle Tupelo. Jeff Tweedy going his way with Wilco, Jay Farrar going off with Sunvolt. There have been innumerable twists and turns in the Wilco story since then. Uh, Many of them are covered in a great book about the band, Learning How to Die, published in 2004 and written by by you, Greg Cott, (laughs) a fine tome. The fandom that this band experienced is is almost cult-like. It's religious. What does the new Wilco album hold? Will it be a, a return to previous sounds? Will it be breaking new ground? That's what everybody always wants to know. So we'll dive into what's on album number 10 in a minute. First, we want to play you a song. This is Someone to Lose from Wilco Schmilko on Sound Opinions. Someone to lose from the new Wilco album Schmilko. You know, uh, you know, Jeff Tweedy <laughs> is laughing every time a critic has to say that on the radio or a DJ. You, you know, you know that. And we're laughing too. Uh, a lot of people are making fun of the cover art. It's this cartoon. They're making fun of the title. I think they're kind of missing the point here. Uh, a lot of these songs are evoking. Uh, Jeff Tweedy's childhood. He's looking back on himself as a kid, that angry, confused, alienated kid, and saying, wait a minute, I recognize that guy. In fact, he sounds and looks a lot like the guy I am today. There's that great line from the opening track, Normal American Kids. I remind myself of myself long ago, before I could drive, before I could vote. Well, yeah, and he describes how he used to hate those normal American kids uh, because he was afraid of them. Now he realizes he, he is them. Bongs and jams and carpeted vans Hate everything I don't understand Hard times tightening the lid I had to get away from those normal American kids And he's saying, you know, we try to normalize our feelings as we become adults. I think what this record is trying to say that, you know, we, we 
deal with these alienating issues by sugarcoating them, by covering them up, by uh, expressing them in more adult-like fashion. And this record, following up Star Wars, which was a jarring, disruptive record in all the best possible ways. Yeah, back know, to the noise. Because, frankly, they had become a little too tasteful and a little too predictable. So I think Star Wars was really an antidote to that. And in many ways, uh, Schmilko, which was created at the same time as Star Wars, it, it's pulled from those same sessions, is a very, very different record. Mm -hmm. And the best reference point I could come up with was T-Rex, when it was known as Tyrannosaurus Rex, mm. those weird little Mark Bolan-esque folky type of things, but weird at the same time. Uh, there's an element of that here in this record. It's folk. There's space in the arrangements. There's acoustic instruments. But there's noise underneath it all, and yeah. it's kind of jarring and unsettling. There's no record in the Wilco discography that quite sounds like this one, and I think that's great. The band has now made, in its uh, 20th plus year now, two records in a row that really sound not like traditional Wilco records at all. I, I think it's a buy-it record for me. It is a buy-it record, Greg. We were not not disliking that, that recent period of, of Wilco, the album, and Sky Blue Sky. Uh, you know, there's good moments on all of that, but it started to sound like Wilco had a formula. They have tossed that up with these last two records, Star Wars and Schmilko. Um, I think it's fascinating that they recorded them at the same time. It makes me think of Neil Young and Russ Never Sleeps. Yeah. The acoustic side and then the full-on loud punk rock side. Wilco separated those into two albums, but they're of a piece. There's a rawness, a realness. They're not afraid to expose their vulnerabilities. And we've talked about Tweety's lyrics. Uh, they're extraordinary here. They are very personal songs about his childhood, downstate Illinois, feeling like a complete misfit. It's wonderful to have Wilco breaking new ground this far into a career. An enthusiastic double buy it. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, one of us likes to take a trip to the desert island, pop a quarter in the jukebox, and play you a song we can't live without. One for the ages. Greg, I'm eager to hear yours. Jim, reminded of this particular song that I'm going to play next uh, by a, a TV commercial, of all things. Oh. I hate to admit it. I hate to admit it. But this song originally uh, popped into my memory bank in the 80s. When Remember when your buddies used to exchange mixtapes, your friends, you know, they, and you would always have a guy who was specializing in a particular area of music. One guy that I knew specialized in these obscure rock and roll and soul records from the 60s. He would try to outdo everybody else by finding the one record that nobody had and putting together a bunch of cassette tapes compiled strictly of these like little one-off singles. One of them was this song, Born to Wander, from an unknown singer named Jack Wood. Lo and behold, it shows up on a liquor ad, you know, decades later. And I hear the song, I go, wait a minute, I've got this on this cassette from 83. <laughs> you, you didn't dig out the C90, did yeah, you? No, yeah, I think I did, because I had, to, I had to remind myself, did I really have that song at one point? I did. So I dug a little deeper. Where did this song come from? 
Turns out it was recorded by this guy named Jack Wood, who basically made two songs in his entire career. In May of 66, he went into a studio in Sparta, Michigan, population 4,000. Mm. I looked it up. I mean, how many recording <laughs> studios How many recording studios are going to be in a town that small? He cuts these two songs with an ad hoc band. He hires these people to play with them. Weird combination of like soul, garage, big band music, little uh, Ennio Morricone soundtrack type mm. of uh, vibe to it with this high-pitched female vocal. He records it with his own money, 250 bucks, presses up 100 copies, tries to get a local radio station to play it, gets a few spins, it disappears from history. It shows up in this liquor ad in 2015. Jack White, his third man records, reissues the single. Find, you know, digs up this track and Jack White lives it. for this sort of thing. Exactly. And it, it, it's just like one of these great little one-off moments in, in rock and roll history. Jack Wood with Born to Wander on Sound Opinions. Jack Wood with Born to Wander, a digging deep Desert Island jukebox pick from Mr. Cott. Good one, Greg. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to unearth some buried treasures, some albums that you need to hear that are underneath the mainstream radar. Greg, a lot of folks extended themselves to us when we were in Seattle. STG presents the Neptune Theater, our station there, KUOW. Adam Yaffe from Chicago traveled with us. Miles Burnett and Andrew Gill helped out with the video. Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banizak, Evan Chung, and Alex Claiborne. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Charles from Philadelphia. Just listened to the great episode about Brazilian music. In the early 90s, I was living in New York, was in love with Brazilian music, 
and one night was out with a group of friends from work. There was this girl named Amy in the group who I really liked. I wasn't sure how she felt about me. We were out at Arturo's coal-fired pizza in the village and where they used to have a jazz trio playing. And every once in a while they would let people get up and sing. So I got up and sang The Girl from Ipanema in Portuguese. Olha que coisa mais linda, mais cheia de graça Ela menina que vem que passa Num doce balanço, caminho do mar This other woman in the audience, who I didn't know, got up and started singing and dancing with me and that made Amy jealous. And that's when we started dating. It's been 18 years, we have three boys and I owe it all to the girl from Ipanema. Thanks a lot. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Larry from Buffalo Grove, Illinois. I was enjoying a recent podcast of yours about uh, songs for late summer. For late summer songs, I must recommend Famous Last Words by Billy Joel. The last track on his last studio album, an unbelievable 23 years ago. Sitting here in Avalon, looking at the pouring rain. The summertime has come and gone, and everybody's home again. The song begins as a celebration of the end of summer and the beginning of autumn with the line, there's comfort in my coffee cup and apples in the early fall, and ends by saying goodbye to his recording career with the lines, and these are the last words I have to say. It's always hard to say goodbye, but now it's time to put this book away. Ain't that the story of my life? Thanks for a great show, Greg and Jim. Keep up the good work. Hi, my name is Michelle, and I'm actually in Georgia. I wanted to give an opinion about songs that remind you of the end of summer. There's this one song that is just perfect. It's by Angela Bofield, and it's Summer Days and Moonlit Nights. So it is just a perfect song that reminds me so much of summer, uh, the weather, love, great times, relaxation. Thanks so much, and I love your show. Hey, this is Saint, a longtime listener. One of my favorite end-of-summer songs is, I think you'd call it a deep cut from Loudon Wainwright's uh, neglected 1976 album, T-Shirt. It's called Summer's Almost Over, and it features that uh, characteristic, uh, dry Wainwright wit. He's saying goodbye to summer love, the summer tan, the swimming pool, the beer belly. And hello to Miserable School Days, Loose Leaf Notebooks. Vacation time is running out like an unplugged fan. Labor Day is coming, wet the old grindstone for all those lazy, hazy,
crazy days you must atone. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.